The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock, and I'm delighted to be joined for the Thursday interview this week by Michael Lester. Michael, how are you? I am very good. Good to be here. It's freezing, isn't it? You're rub- you're literally rubbing your hands. I am. It's co- well, we're not too bad here on the east coast because I know they have they're having snow and other difficulties across the country and mm. that sort of thing. But it is. I'm cold and I'm wet. <laughs> but uh, but I got a nice cup of coffee when I came in here, so that's all good. Oh well, we're nothing if not hospitable. <laughs> uh, um, um, when you talk about the other parts of the country, the west coast, I, like I'd always, and most people would associate you with with Galway as a yeah. Galway man. You're from Waterford originally, though, is that right? I was born in Waterford. Yeah, uh, but I grew up in Galway, and like I would say to people, when when Galway played Waterford in the All Ireland hurling final a couple of years ago, fellows were saying to me, "Well, who will you be shouting mm. for?" You know, and I I used to say to them. This is not an issue, you know. Where you went to school, where you went to mass, where you had your, all your friends and things like yeah. that, that's where you're from, you know. But I was actually born in Dungarvan. My father was a guard and uh, he was stationed, and from Galway, and he was stationed in Dungarvan at that stage when I was born. But uh, I was only two or three, I think, maybe, okay. when when I left and went, and went to Galway and actually lived in the house that he grew up in. Oh, very good. In uh, in the village of Barnajarrigan outside Chum. So, so, so very much, Chum, very much a Galway. But, but in actual fact, all of my my mother came from a, a fairly big family, and growing up, all my cousins and uncles and aunts and all that, they were all Waterford people. And we used to go on holidays down to Waterford during the summer and that kind of stuff. And I remember a couple of years ago, uh, I was talking to a fellow about this and talking about going out to Tremor on the train, mm. and he says to me, "The bus," and I said, "No, the train." He says, "There was no train." And I said, there was a train. So we had this discussion yeah. and he sent me an email. Um, I was still working in RT. He sent me an, an email one day and said, want to apologise, research that. And there was a train yeah. from Waterford out to, out to Tremor. But it was it finished in the early 60s or something. Uh, it would, there was a longer trek back then from Galway down to Waterford for holidays. Oh, than it is. You, it's, you it's still not a great drive, but it's no, better today. I, I genuinely, we used to go by train most of the time. And and it felt like you were crossing Europe. It was like the Trans Europe <laughs> Express kind of, you know. Um, and I remember, I can still remember places along the way, like Limerick Junction and places like that kind of, you know. But you were you you thought you were gone on an expedition kind of. You felt like mm. you should be bringing a camper and you know a, a basket of sandwiches or something like that, you know. But yeah, great fun. And had you ever considered following your dad's footsteps into the guards? No, I didn't. Uh, which was. I suppose slightly odd in the sense that his father was a guard and a policeman before that when Ireland was part of the, yeah. the British Empire and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the the, the uh, tradition is there, if you know what I mean. And in actual fact, one of my daughters, Ellen, is married to a guard. Okay. So it's all, it's all around me. Yeah. But I often would say like, you know, when I was on TV and doing the Sunday game or whatever the case is, like what I would wear on television, it was like a uniform to me because I'm not a, a shirt and tie type of person. Mm. I'd be going around, and I'd come in here if I thought I'd get away with today in a tracksuit kind of, you know. Um, and I'm sure you wouldn't mind because we're on radio. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but the thing is like, I would all, if I was going to do a Sunday game down in, Thurlis or Castle Bar or whatever, I would always travel in a tracksuit or during the summertime, obviously when the weather was nice, maybe in a pair of shorts or something like that, and only change when I got to the studio. And then as soon as we finished on air, changed, took off the suit again or the jacket and tie and all the rest of it. So um, 
So I always felt like I was wearing uniform if I wasn't in the in the guards, you know. Mm. What well, what then had like had I been speaking to the young Michael Lester and Tume, if you weren't going to follow your dad's footsteps? I mean, what was on the cards? What what did you see for yourself? I I can honestly say to you, I had no career path. Um, although there was a path in front of me, but uh, I didn't choose to follow it. Um, when I left school, I started working in the Chum Sugar Factory. And a cousin of mine was the manager of the Carlo Sugar Factory. Yeah. So there was, let's, let's say, there was a, a, a family connection and a job opportunity there going forward. Um, but while I was working in, uh, in the sugar factory, I saw an ad in the Toomherd newspaper looking for a junior reporter. And, and I was always interested in English and stuff like that. And I applied for it. And I, and I had no qualifications in the sense that I didn't go to journalism school or anything like that. But the editor of the paper, Jared Burke, he, he wanted somebody with local knowledge, not just somebody who had a certificate, mm. uh, but somebody who knew the area and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I got the job and I was in the Tomb Herald for six years. And I saw an ad when RT started 2FM, as it is now, Radio 2 at the time, in 1979. Um, after being on the air for maybe about five or six months, they advertised for a sports news unit to pan out what they were doing in the service they were providing. And I applied for that. And I had I can tell you for a fact, I had absolutely no intention of going to RTE or going to Dublin or anything like that. I applied for the crack. OK. I applied for a day out in RTE in the hopes that you might bump into Gayborn or Pat Kenny or you yeah. know, that kind of stuff and <laughs> say how are you and all that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, I got called back for another interview and then for a voice test and all this kind of stuff. And then they offered me the job. Yeah. And at that stage, I had to say, I was saying to myself, oh, this is a bit awkward, kind of, you know. And, and I didn't respond to the letter. And they wrote to me again and said, basically what they said was, in nice terminology, we couldn't give a hoot whether you're coming or not, but at least would you make your mind up kind of. You know? Yeah, yeah. And and I did a spur of the moment thing. Mm. I just simply said to myself, should I do this or shouldn't I? And around that time, remember that Pirate Radio had been on the air for a short time. And it was my summation that this would be legalised in the near future. And that a big centre like Galway big county and a city and all that kind of stuff, that it would get a radio station, which it did, of course. Yeah. And I thought, OK, let's go to RT for a year or two, get trained up, if you like, get experience. Yeah. And then hop back to the West and work for Galway Bay FM. But uh, that part of it, I never followed through. No, so. you could still do it. It's still time, I could Mike. still you do it. You could still yeah, do yeah. it. Um, so when you, when you took that job in Radio 2 and became 2FM, yeah. did... What was the job? Was it, you know, it was, was it to the, be on air? Yeah, it was doing the sports news. Okay. There were four of us. There was myself, John Saunders, Verwin Jones and Caroline Murphy. Mm. And actually there was a fifth man, a sub, if you like, who was Gabriel Egan. Gabriel went on to become a well-known radio soccer commentator yeah. for years. And uh, and John Saunders is now the head of Fleischmann Hillard, which is Budweiser's PR division. Yeah. And he lives in, and their headquarters is in St. Louis in the States and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Fear, unfortunately, passed away some years ago. Uh, and that was the sports news unit. That was us. And and we started off just simply servicing 2FM. 
mm. Radio 2. And then it, naturally, I suppose, when you got a bit more experience, you branched out a little bit. You got asked to do different things and all that. And for a good while, actually, I was RT Radio's rugby uh, reporter. Yeah. And in actual fact, went on a Lions tour to New Zealand and all that kind of oh, stuff. Wow. Great crack, you know. And if there was an international in Lansdowne Road, I was the man for Radio 2 to cover that and all that kind of stuff, you know. And it was only afterwards, it was only a couple of years afterwards that the Sunday game opportunity arose and and that kind of changed the direction that I was going in then, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. Yeah, but even, even those opportunities, whatever, for, for set aside the kind of the, the work aspect of it, they must have been just great opportunities in and of themselves. The world was a bigger place. Do you know, there wasn't the same level of travel there would be now just amongst fans off to go on a Lions tour, for example. Oh, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that's, that's very true. And and it, it was, I enjoyed every second of it. And the thing I, that I liked about working in radio was you could be asked to do anything. Like, we used to cover a lot of motor racing yeah. because one of the producers in sports department, Michael O'Carroll, was a big motorsport fan. So I'd spend a lot of Sundays out in Mondello covering the Leinster Trophy races or a hockey international someplace. I mean, things that... Actually, I was sent to do a couple of cricket matches, which was an absolute disgrace because I had no clue what the rules of cricket were. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I'd ask a few <laughs> fellas a, a few questions, kind of, you know, and yeah. go on air. And I, I'd be I'd be reporting on these things. I remember reporting on one between Ireland and the West Indies on one occasion. And halfway through the, the report that I was doing, I was saying to myself, this is complete rubbish. I haven't a clue what I'm doing. You know? <laughs> but it's part of it's part of broadcasting. Yeah. What you don't know, just bluff it. You know? There's a great story. I know, you've probably heard Ronald Reagan, who was obviously a sports broadcaster, a commentator before he became an actor and yeah, ultimately yeah. president. Um, you know, it, one of his jobs, you, you'd just be watching these screens and commentating on games, you know, or you'd be getting stuff down the wire and he'd just be reading it out nearly, yeah. but kind of in a dramatic voice. Sure, sure. But, yeah. but in, in, there was a great story, um, maybe it's apocryphal, but anyway, um, where, where the, the feed cut out but he had to keep going. So he commentated for about 10 minutes on a baseball game without, he couldn't, he, he didn't know what was happening, but he just kept commentating. He basically, he just made up the next 10 minutes. Absolutely. Well, that that has been known to happen. I mean, <laughs> Ronald Reagan, and it's probably true, actually, given his, his background and that, um, but he wouldn't be the only person to have found himself in that situation. I remember watching, actually, on television, uh, a rugby match years ago. Nigel Starmer-Smith was the commentator on it, and there was a heavy fog and probably the game shouldn't have been played, but they went ahead with it anyway because it was a televised match. And it was quite clear that Nigel Starmer-Smith couldn't see anything that was going on, which wasn't his fault as such. <laughs> but at one stage, he said, out of desperation to say something, he said, the backs are going forwards and the forwards are going backwards. And I said, that's very good. I must remember that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how, how from all of this then did the Sunday game happen? They were trying out, me in this case, looking for the presenter of the Sunday game going forward would this fella be any good kind of at it? So I must have kind of got away with it because I did got, get asked in 1984, uh, would I be interested in presenting the Sunday game? Which wasn't as straightforward as it seems because there was a big divide, not just physically in RTE at the time, between the radio sport and the TV sport, but there was a, a philosophical divide as well. One thought the other were the enemy, kind of, you okay, know, that, yeah. that sort of gig. Yeah. And uh, uh, when I got offered this particular role, Radio Sport really objected to it. 
and they, they wouldn't sign off on it. And I had to, in actual fact, had to go over their heads to the next level of management in RTE. And, and a very reasonable guy that was in middle management at the time kind of said, look, you know, I, I think... I think you should do this. I think this would be good. I'll sort this out and we'll, we'll get it cleared. Mm. But the deal was that I had to fulfil all my radio schedule as well as these new TV commitments or whatever. So in 1984, I found myself during the summer of that year working seven days a week and sometimes 12, 13 hours a day because I would, I would do the Sunday game or there was also a Monday game TV show as well yeah. for highlights of the other matches and things like that. I would have to do those things, but I then have to fulfil my radio shift as well. And okay, it was it was physically draining. I mean, by the end of that summer, I was a wreck. And we, there was also, by the way, in 1984, an Olympic Games. Yeah, and I was asked to be involved in presenting that and all the rest of it. But it was it was one of those things where it was an unreasonable workload, but it was an opportunity which I knew. You don't say no to these things. Mm. You just do it, kind of, you know, and, and figure out the damage afterwards, kind of, you know. So that, that was basically it. And then the following year, it became quite obvious to me and to the people on television that I couldn't keep doing this, that it was either one or the other. Mm. And and I quit radio, or they quit me, I suppose, probably. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I became a full-time presenter then with the, the TV sport. Like, was that immediately life-changing in the sense of you know, being recognisable and everything. Oh, yeah. You know, suddenly, suddenly you're. So I'm not sure if the word celebrity would have been kind of bandied around as as quickly I, as it is today. I, but you what, you were. What I would label it as personality. Yes. Okay. Personality. Yeah. And and there's no doubt about that. I mean, people watched the Sunday game. People knew who you were, and you were a new face as well, which yeah. which always helps, kind of. You know, because when I started on the Sunday game in '84, I was 30 years old. All the other people around at the time, like the McDonnes or the Sean O'Callaghan's or Michael O'Hare was still there and that, they were all of a of a slightly older generation. In actual fact, looking back on it now, they were all an awful lot younger than I am now, but I saw them as older men, you know, yeah, that yeah, kind of way. Yeah. And, uh, and I was a new face in the middle of all this thing, which helped, of course, you know, yeah. and, and that got media attention and all that kind of stuff, you know. And, and that, was, that was nice. It was great crack. Now we're at the point where the Sunday game is this kind of cultural institution in the country yeah. and great evidence of it was when they tried to change the music and everything and people had such uproar about it a few years ago. And then other changes more recently as well. I, You know, what, what do you make of kind of debates that are had about about pundits and who's involved and the the, the dropping of controversial pundits maybe? Yeah, the, the, um, from my experience of it with the Sunday game, I enjoyed the controversy of it in the sense that it livened the programme up. Like the way I looked at it, Kieran, was that people watched the Sunday game to watch the match. But could we bring the value added to the yes. programme as well as the match? You know, the halftime discussion or the pre-match or whatever the case may be. And, and these guys were just fantastic at it because they didn't give a hoot. They just went, particularly like Joe, who would just go on and say anything, kind of, you know. Yeah. And, and, and there were others in Gerard Nan or Pat Spillane or whatever the case is, you know. Um, so I had, I had massive fun for those years. Massive headaches at times. Uh, mass, massive sit-downs in some boss's uh, office in RTE, being told, never allow that to happen again. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd say, no, no, that was that was a bad mistake. I'm sorry about this. And then just did it the next Sunday anyway. <laughs> kind of, you know. so, 
Yeah, but it's, you know, it, everything changes. Yeah. The Sunday game has changed. Obviously, I've left a seat and all that. And that's normal. It's normal for things to evolve. In actual fact, if you were to ask me, standing back at a distance from it, I was 35 years the presenter of the Sunday game. That was probably too long. You know. Okay. I wasn't going to hold my hand up at the time and say, I want out of here or anything yeah. like that. I didn't, you know. Uh, but just, you need, you need to change things sometimes yeah. just to, to liven them up, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but uh, I tell you, it was, it was 35 years of just a blast. Kind yeah. Of thing, yeah. Well, listen, I, I, like I said, it was it became something of a cultural institution under your stewardship, which is probably why people hold you in such high regard. And uh, they will uh, criticise me if I don't ask before I let you go. How is the health these days? The health is not bad, actually. OK, um, great. Which is, it's, it's kind of, that's a kind of a, 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 a tricky question to answer in the sense that I have a serious heart condition and that is never going to go away. It's not going to magically cure itself or whatever. So I know kind of I have one foot at the edge of the cliff from that point of view. But the important thing about it is generally I feel fine. It doesn't impact my life as such. In other words, I'm not in a wheelchair or I'm not in hospital or anything like that, you know. So... um, philosophically the way I look at it is look I'm above ground I keep going I'm, I don't worry about it I don't mm. think about it um, although I do a little bit of work which I'm doing at the moment for either the Irish Heart Foundation or the Heart Failure Unit out in um, St Michael's and Dunleary because mm. they've they've launched an app or they've, they've bought into an app that's available it's actually a European project um, to get people like myself uh, heart failure patients to to engage with this app to monitor themselves in terms of where they're at health-wise, blood pressure, heart rate and things like that. Because up to this point, most heart failure patients, we would go into hospital, whether it's here in in the East Coast or over in the West or whatever the case is, and and go in for a checkup maybe once a year or twice a year or whatever the case is. Um, By engaging with this app, you can actually monitor where you are yourself Plus, it, it obviously feeds in yeah. to a system that they have as well and they can keep an eye on you. In actual fact, I got a phone call from them a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was very funny. Um, just inquiring how I was. Okay. And I said, I'm fine. And they said, we're just looking at your stats here. Your weight is a bit low. You've lost a little bit of weight. And I said, oh, well, you know, that's good, isn't it? We'd be slightly concerned about that, you know. And I, I actually said to the to the, the lady yeah. that I was talking to, I said, this is the first time that I've ever engaged with anybody in the medical business who told me that I was losing weight as opposed to that I was putting <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <you laughs> know? Um, but listen, I guess it's 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 a, someone is looking over your shoulder. Is the point of this app? Oh well, yeah. Agree? I mean, that's it's it's a as I said, it's a, a monitoring thing yeah. that just if there's any major change in terms of your blood pressure suddenly goes off the off the scale or something like that, you know, it can yeah. be spotted fairly quickly. But um, but no, I mean, from that point of view, all those things are, are OK. Um, but then, who knows? I mean, in life, who knows? Yeah. You know. Well, I guess that's true of everyone. But like exactly. I said, people yeah. hold you in such high regard, they'll be glad to hear someone, uh, even digitally, is looking over your shoulder. Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for I've enjoyed it. And thank you very much indeed. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four.
on News Talk.